Programming Throwdown, Episode 79, Technical Arguments. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So this is going to be an interesting episode. You know, we, uh, uh, you know, we do every episode in one take, and this is going to be no exception. But uh, uh, this is going to have, uh, it's going to be a pretty wild one. So, you know, usually we're covering a language. Uh, we're interviewing somebody, and, you know, we've talked to them beforehand. So we kind of know, you know, they're a subject matter expert in, in X, and we know, we know X pretty well. Um, this is going to be something pretty different. We're going to talk about arguing, um, you know, not in general, although that might come up like more like, uh, I guess, philosophical stuff, but, but really about arguing at work. We've both been uh, in tech for a while. We've seen a lot of the canonical arguments. We'll kind of go through a lot of them. Um, but I wanted to talk about blockchain. I actually took the time to really understand uh, how blockchain works. So I'll spend a couple of minutes on that, uh, like the, the actual technology. And Patrick, you can kind of fact check me on this. <clears throat> but basically, um, you know, when we did the blockchain episode with Amy Wan a while back, um, I had just started learning about blockchain. Um, and uh, one of the things I asked was sort of, how do you keep somebody from just saying, oh, everyone gave me a million dollars, right? And um, what I learned is under the hood, um, there's this thing called a, um, basically a hash list. I think it's also called a Merkle tree or, or whatever. But but the, the important takeaway is, you know, in this chain of events, um, the every chain has uh, the hash of the block before it. And so what that means is, uh, you know, you take that uh, the, the let's say you're at block N and you have to make block N plus one. Well, block N plus one um, will have a hash of block N in it as part of the block. And so, but but then if you think about it, it becomes this sort of recursive thing because block N has a hash of N minus one and N minus one has a hash of N minus two, so on and so on and so forth. So let's say you decide to change block, you know, two and give yourself a million dollars, right? For you to do that, you have to change all the blocks afterwards, right? Like you have to change everything because as soon as you change something, um, you know, then the hash of the thing after that is different. And that hash is part of the next hash. And so it just it ends up being this huge thing that you have to change. Um, and 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 doing that change, like adding a block is is hard. Right. I mean, I won't go into a lot of details, but it's something that will take your computer a long time. And so, you know, people are constantly adding these blocks. The chain is getting longer and longer. There's a ton of machines out there. And basically, you just can't really keep up and you can't just make a change in the middle without you know, progressing all the way forward to the present. And you can't really catch up to the present by yourself. So for this reason, this is sort of how the system kind of heals itself, is if I go and um, even if I can, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things around around how to mine the block and all of that. But let's say I get super lucky and I can mine a block. Um, you know, I, I can't say, oh, you know, uh, you know, everyone gave me a million dollars because you know, other people aren't really going to validate that. And then while they're trying to reconcile all of that, more blocks are getting added. And I'm not going to be able to to add blocks as quickly as everyone else can. Well, the simple way to, to state that, though, is you need people's identities are tied to a public key and you need a private key signing uh, the transaction that 
that says you transferred a million dollars. So if you mine a block and put all of these fraudulent records in, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be cryptographically signed correctly. So you couldn't say Patrick gave me a million dollars because I'm the only one who has the private key that could sign such a message that you would include in your block. So if you made up one and put it in your block and then other people fact checked you, they would realize that that block was invalid. Yeah, you're right. That's true as well. Yeah. Um, but then the... Uh... And so then the Merkle, the tree, the, the chain comes in from the fact that someone else could mine on top of my fake block, but they're disincentivized to do that because they won't get the reward if it's if the majority of nodes participating don't accept that as a valid path. If they basically say, hey, somebody has an invalid block here and anything after that block is also invalid, then right. you're incentivized to make to sort of fact check other people so that if you complete your mining of a block, you will emit a block which is on top of one that doesn't later get invalidated. Right. But then so so yeah, I agree there's the there's the public private key thing, but then you need more like you also need the proof of work and this whole like hash tree. Because you could say, well, if I have the private public key, then what do I need all this other stuff for? Right. And so so yeah, I think you're right. So so let's say there's a list of sort of valid transactions, right? Um, at some point, you still have to decide which sort of valid transactions you want to execute in the next block. And that's where, um, you know, if you limit it to the scope of valid transactions, that's where the stuff I said originally right. has an effect. Like, like, I can't just put all the blocks on myself and take all the credit for all those transactions because, you know, I'm having to solve this difficult problem. And uh, there's a whole bunch of other people doing it at the same time. Well, the reason for having the proof of work is is to say that that's exactly right. Like people are incentivized to sort of continue this chain on in a way that sort of adds credence to earlier things in the chain. And they're incentivized to do that to do work. And if it was if there wasn't a proof of work, it would be too easy to just sort of make infinitely many of these things and, and you would just get lost in the noise. And so you see, need some mechanism for sort of controlling the rate. Right. Yeah, so it kind of makes sense. I'll definitely read up. Uh, maybe next month, uh, you know, I'll post some links to the things that kind of explained it the best. Because I've read a bunch of them. And, uh, you know, obviously some are better than others. But uh, overall, I was yeah, it was really interesting. It was, it was a fascinating thing. Um, you know, I think I would love to see, you know, there, there is some like, uh, I think it's called Steamed. But there's like a forum that's based on blockchain, which I thought was pretty cool. And uh, yeah, there's a bunch of bunch of really neat stuff coming from that technology. So. so your explanation of chain, though, also describes why you hear about cryptocurrency forks. So there's like Ethereum forked into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Bitcoin has forked several times. And this is where people say you have, if you had Bitcoin, now you have a Bitcoin and a Bitcoin cash token because there was a right. fork. And people talk about hard forks and soft forks. And those are basically paths where at some point in time, people say at block number N plus one, we're going to switch something in our code. And other people say, we don't want to. And there basically becomes a hard fork. There becomes two blocks minted with the same predecessor node. But, oh, but then some group of people both authenticate those chains going forward. And so now you have two paths that were common at some point. So they, they diverge, they fork, and then they continue on. But from that point on, they they don't always have the same sort of value relative to fiat for a cryptocurrency 
or they have their own set of conditions that make or don't make sense. So in the case of like Ethereum versus Ethereum Classic, whether the like DAO, the automated uh, thing, which had the hack, whether that happened or not, essentially in one, they tried to undo that in the Ethereum and in the Ethereum Classic, they said, no, that makes no sense to undo that. I'm greatly simplifying. So it makes no sense to undo that. That was a valid thing to happen. And so we're gonna continue on saying as if it did happen. And so now the two chains diverge. They're hard forked from each other. So at some point, will one take over the other? Like, how does that No, work? I mean, take over isn't the right, they can't, because like you just described these chains, there's no mechanism for sort of joining them. But one could be worth more than the other. So like Ethereum is worth more relative to fiat, relative to US dollars or euros than Ethereum Classic. Because oh, more people think that that's the right choice, I guess. Um, okay. But this has different implications of whether you're talking about a cryptocurrency on the blockchain or a different use. Um, so, yeah, so ta- but sense. then takeover is anybody could create, you could create a fork of Bitcoin if you wanted. You could just come up with a new set of parameters, mine, do the proof of work, mine the coin, and you know declare, yay, verily, this is Jason's Jason coin nice. as a fork of Bitcoin. Um, that's what I always But wanted. then you have to convince somebody it's worth something. Oh, that's the hard part. <laughs> so you have to convince somebody to join on your chain right? And start oh, building on it and then accept it as valid trade from other people. Okay. That makes sense. But you could do that. And then I think the term soft fork is where basically uh, something changes, but th- the the entire consensus agrees and also moves along with the change. Oh, okay. So basically that nobody bothers m- m- like mining the coins that would have been on the previous trajectory. Yeah, so they're just, they become worthless. Effectively. Well, just, yeah, just nobody ever, there's no market for them. Yeah. And right. so it's considered a soft fork. Versus a hard fork is some set of people agree to continue on to your chain. Oh, I see. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, that's wild. But a soft fork happens every time, I, I think basically every time you change some of like some parameter or an algorithm for how to do something. Yeah, that makes sense. Because then some machines who don't have that change, right, will mine the wrong way and everyone else will mine it the right way. Is that right? Yes. Well, right and wrong is perspective. Uh, The way that dominates, yeah. Um, The way that holds the value, I guess. All right, on to news. Um, This is pretty cool. So this is OpenAI 5, um, which is basically, uh, there's a game, uh, you know, um, uh, AlphaGo uh, played Go better than, you know, the world champion. And so there's always been, you know, sort of the frontier of AI seems to be now, you know, playing these video games and basically passing the Turing test on these video games. Um, and uh, OpenAI 5 is is sort of the next iteration or the next evolution of that. So there's a game called Defense of the Ancients uh, 2. It's called Dota 2. And uh, it's a five-on-five game. And so that's that presents a lot of really interesting challenges, right? So, um, you know, in theory, you you know, well, depending on the rules and how the what the AI is allowed to do, I mean, you could say, oh, let's have one brain for all five players, one one AI for all five players. In a way, it's kind of cheating. Um, but even beyond that, it turns out it's not very practical because that that AI has to do um, exponentially more decisions. It's like, for example, just to keep it really simple, let's say you can go up, down, left, right, right. But let's say there's two players. Well, now I could go up and you could go up or I could go up and you could go left. So now there's there's 16 actions. It's not eight. It's 16 because because all the combinations. Right. And so making one AI for all the five players, is not actually that good. 
Um, so what they did is they actually created um, an AI that can communicate and send some signals to um, the other players, um, the other AI, or it's really to itself because it's one sort of brain that's just been replicated, you know, five times. Um, it's really interesting. They go in, you know, there's a lot of technical details. So um, I'm kind of hand waving a lot of that. But basically, uh, it's it's really amazing. Also, they they ran it on a ton of machines. So they, they really scaled it up and they just have all these machines like cranking through all these defensive ancient games. Um, and they were able to beat some amateur human players. So, I mean, this isn't like world-class stuff yet or anything like that, uh, but it's still, it's still good. I mean, um, uh, you know, being able to beat an average, an average human is, is, is an amazing accomplishment. And um, they also developed some pretty interesting, you know, kind of, um, like altruistic strategies, you know. So one of the one of the issues with AI is that it's very sort of self-centered, and so you know one of the ways a lot of these systems would fall apart, at least early on, is that you know there wouldn't be sort of coordination and altruism, and if one person was in any amount of danger, they would just run away, and then the humans would just pick them off one by one. Um, now there's definitely some coordinated effort. There's people players you know the ai make sacrifices sometimes and things like that um, it's pretty amazing i have to admit uh so i'm i'm in this field i mean this is what i do for a living and so uh, i am really really shocked that uh um that this much progress was made in this amount of time it's truly truly remarkable and so it's it's gonna be really really fascinating to see uh you know where this all goes and did they this you know this research they did in this paper obviously like is very difficult relative to like the amount of hidden information the number of choices to make but did they find like any sort of what they thought was the reason to not continue to make even like not just beat amateurs but beat pros it's just like processing power algorithm like they give it yeah that's a good question I I think um, so okay I still don't think um, that they're the game theoretic part is being handled correctly right so. So, for example, um, uh, if you look at if you look at Do- uh, Dota, you know the, the the characters are stereotyped, right? So there's a carry who's supposed to, um, as the name says, sort of carry the team. But basically, they're the ones who are supposed to collect as much money as possible. Uh, you're not allowed to give money to your teammates, so they they have to earn it. But you know the goal is to make the carry earn as much money as possible, and and not the other players on on their on your team. Um, then there's the support. And the support is responsible for for buying, let's say, all the items. So, so, so the idea of altruism is baked into the character archetypes, right? And I think even in the model, they they you know basically hand hand tune that, right? Um, and so then the 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 real emergent altruism in in Dota is this idea of like lane changing. So, for example, uh, for people who don't know Dota, real quick. There's there's three little lanes like imagine like three little highways. Um, all this battle this battle is sort of going on on these three highways, and you're usually in one of them. Uh, but you can spend some time to switch lanes. And so, for example, let's say you're in the middle lane and the left lane. Uh, there's a there's an enemy who's really weak in the left lane. Maybe he got hurt or something, right? You could try to go across to the left lane and and catch him um you know uh, trap him and kill that that hero and then you get a lot of money um and so you know this there's this idea of like oh if if uh if the opponent is sort of beating up on me uh you know i'm gonna kind of take 
take some hits and things like that and let the opponent think he's sort of doing well. Meanwhile, my teammates are switching lanes and all of a sudden there's going to be four people attacking this one guy. He doesn't really expect it. So, so there's sort of this like strategic, I guess I'll say strategic altruism or strategic coordination. That's something the AI does not do. Um, that is notably missing. And, and until they get that, um, it's, it's not going to be very good. Um, so, so what I expect, if I was to predict the next, the next thing that, that these folks would work on, um, I think they're going to, you know, really take a look at the game theoretic part of this. And they're going to try to do some kind of, you know, approximate Nash equilibrium or some opponent modeling or something like that. So that, you know, at a high level, they can get this coordination, this altruism that they don't have at the moment. At a tactical level, they have it, which is really surprising, actually. Like, uh, I watched one video where, um, you know, this player kind of got behind the enemies and then kind of trapped them. And the player who trapped them, you know, ended up, like, not really being able to get a lot done. But because he trapped them, you know, the other players on his team were able to go in and, and kill them all. And so that kind of like tactical coordination altruism, they've been able to crack that, which is a surprise. But the strategic part, they're still missing. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's really, really cool. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I thought that this was way far out and now I'm starting to think that this could happen in the next like three, four years. The, yeah, robot overlords are coming. We're all doomed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then, then they're going to take this AI and put it on the stock market and then... <laughs> in, okay. Microsoft announced this month that they're acquiring GitHub. Uh, That's wild. Yeah, this was really surprising to me when I saw the news. Not because it just it seemed sort of weird. Like Microsoft buying GitHub, like why? Um, but people pointed out like there are some, you know, decent reasons. And, and you know, we'll see sort of what happens long term. But, uh you know, Microsoft is not the company that, you know, when I sort of, I don't even want to call it like coming of age, when I was sort of went to college and first started working as a programmer, everybody loved to hate on Microsoft. And I guess in retrospect, they did make a lot of bad decisions around that time. Um, yeah. But they've come a long way and they really, you know, I've, I've been looking through the list of things they've done recently and they really have sort of seemed to kind of turn a page, which is pretty remarkable for yeah. for a tech company to have been around as long as them and still be sort of, in the running for, you know, impact on a day-to-day -day basis for people. Um, yeah, well, they replaced the CEO. That was really when things turned around. Yeah, and, and the new guy, uh, I won't, I'll, I'll mess up his name if I try to say it. Well, I'll try. I think it's Satya Nadella. Is I think that that's right? pretty close. Uh, All right. Uh, sounds right to me. Um, but he, okay. the, yeah, so he does, he's been doing a great job and, you know, they've, they've bought GitHub and continue to say, like, you know, providing tools for developers and, uh, and integrating and they do a lot of open source work. They contribute a lot to, I guess, to Linux stuff people were even saying um, and bringing that into Windows as well. So, uh, you know, initial gut reaction is like, what? No. Oh, and there was some reports of, you know, projects fleeing GitHub and onto other things um, to avoid whatever. Um, you know, another part of this that a lot of people don't talk about, I'm kind of surprised, is, is you know, GitHub made Atom, the, the, yes. the uh, IDE. And um, Microsoft released the Visual Studio Code, which is a fork of Atom. And um, and Atom is unbelievably popular. I mean, I bet Atom is is really eating into their Visual Studio business to the point where they had to make Visual Studio Code. Um, 
And so that's another thing is they really took a, a big IDE like off the table, you know, or at least they, they own it. So they turned it into a win-win. So they have announced that they believe that they are committed to maintaining both Visual Studio Code and Atom, despite the fact that they're competing. Yeah, I believe it. So, so they came out later and did say they, but yeah, this is an interesting thing. Um, I, I don't have the, the acquisition price. I never know when they list acquisition prices, if those are. I saw seven and a half billion. Are, I don't know if that's true. I don't know how, yeah, how speculative versus real they are. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe they have to disclose because they're a publicly traded company. Um, but yeah, so the, there's a high acquisition price and, you know, I, I hope it works well. I, I like GitHub. I, I initially didn't really understand it or get it, but, but now I, I like it and use it in the, we use it some for some peripheral projects I work on and like the flow that they have for submitting code and reviewing code and managing projects has come a long way than when I had first was exposed to it. Yep. So it's yep. making improvements. Um, and I know for open source projects, I mean, versus source versus source forge, um, which oh, is what man, I used to no remember. Comparison. Yeah. Yeah. This, it seems to be, you know, crushing it. So. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, very solid product. Yeah. It was pretty funny. This idea like, oh, we're going to leave. I, I don't feel threatened or I don't feel like my projects are, are threatened at all by this. I mean, I mean, what, what could they possibly do? So, um, I mean, I guess some people you know. didn't, or people think about GitHub as being, you know, just this bastion of open source. And I guess it really is, but they do a lot of closed source stuff as well. And I mean, I'm sure that's where all their money comes from is yeah. selling to companies for on-site licenses, selling for companies to, uh, you know, have private repositories. Um, yep. I mean, that's their, I don't even know if they have donations for other stuff, but I, I mean, they probably can't amount to much. Um, so I'm sure they have a few really big companies that make a lot of money off of this. And that's always been, or they make a, all their money off of a few relatively large accounts is my guess. That's typically how yep. that stuff works out. Um, yeah, and, and my guess is that people never really thought about that because it happened sort of behind the scenes. It wasn't the face of it, but now, and GitHub was a startup, you know, they were a company. Um, and now the fact that Microsoft bought them though, exposes you to this notion of wait, but there is a company behind all this with profit motives and, you know, a desire to make, you know, product and sell it. Uh, and so most of the people I saw were recommending going to GitLab where if I understand GitLab actually does open source their, the hosting itself, like you can run for free your own GitLab instance. Um, oh, I didn't know that. I believe that's the case. So they are also a company, but I believe it's more along the lines of uh, traditional open source companies where they open source it and then they hope you sort of like, you know, uh, contract them for hosting of the data or for, uh, you know, support or adding features. But I, I don't quote me on that, but I believe it's more in line with that style of project where it's just... That makes sense. Or you need to integrate it with your like user account system and they charge you for that or something. Yeah. Um, but GitHub itself was never really, uh, it helped open source, but it wasn't itself open source. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, cool. My article is, uh, this is a trick. Families earning 117000 a year now qualifies low income in California's Bay Area. Uh, so people probably know this. Patrick and I live in California's Bay Area. Um, obviously, I mean, there's like your gut reaction, which is, you know, that's uh that's that's crazy um but i actually want to talk a little bit about sort of like diffusing uh silicon valley not diffusing as in like shutting down but diffusing as in you would diffuse like water or something right so so you know you're already starting to see it but it's very slow and and 
Yeah, I'd be really curious, Patrick, to hear what you think about, you know, I mean, the, a big part of Silicon Valley is is communication over the Internet, right? And so it seems like, you know, these big companies could at least move, you know, branches of their organization to other cities and things like that. Um, and uh, you know, that would fix uh, or that would address this 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 income issue, uh, you know, traffic and all these other issues. But, you know, you never see it like you always kind of say, well, this is going to happen. You know, I always kind of expected it, but it hasn't happened yet. And so now I'm starting to think um, that, you know, it, it's just maybe it's just there's something like magical, I guess, about being physically close that makes these uh, companies all want to consolidate in, in one spot. Right. Yeah. I mean, Eric Schmidt from Google, uh, I, I mean, I heard him talk once and someone, you know, mentioned this, like, why does Google feel that it has to have everybody in the Bay Area living or coming to Mountain View? You know, it's a tech company that they make all their money on the internet like this makes no sense like why everybody in one location um and you know he didn't have really a great answer for it but then they asked this like what about this cost of living like this isn't sustainable he's like yeah basically people have been saying that since like i want to say he said like the early 90s i believe he came from like sun microsystems before um going to google and so like he had been in that area for a long time so i kind of expect he probably knows but he's like yeah people have been saying that the Bay Area is overpriced and expensive and will never last for, you know, I guess three decades at least now. <laughs> yeah, um, true. And they have gone through a couple of boom bust cycles, like obviously the dot com crash, the 2008 hi- housing crisis. So although that that second one didn't really affect us, if I recall correctly. Right? I didn't to the same degree. I mean, it did, but not not in the same magnitude as a lot of other places. Yeah, I mean, I think it was like. 20% versus other people were hit with like 50%. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, there have been slight corrections, but in general, yeah, it's been just ever increasing cost of living here. And as far as I know, and a lot of the articles around this mention this, it's, you know, f- which is an interesting observation if you don't live in this area. In general, in California, some things are more expensive, like gasoline is more expensive. Um, but you also, in my experience coming from not in California, I drive, I don't have to drive as far. Well, California as a whole is pretty big, but the Bay Area tends to be pretty compact relative right. to a lot of other areas. Um, not obviously living in a big city, but uh, so you don't need to drive as far as so you don't spend as much. So it's a little bit of a wash. Um, but obviously there's a state tax that's pretty high and not all states have taxes. But the by far in a way, the biggest thing is the actually housing cost. So housing is just really expensive. And the reason why you see right. something crazy like $117,000 a year $117,000 per year could be considered, you know, low income is, is if you look, most people say you're not supposed to spend more than 40 or 50% of your income on housing. Right. And if the median house, I believe I saw in San Francisco is now $900,000 for the median. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you sort of calculate out how much you're spending, uh, you know, and rents are com- commiserate. If you look at how much you're spending, that's a large driver of that is strictly just housing. Right, right. Yeah, I think, um, so yeah, yeah, the housing is, is, is really large. But, but you know, the, the face, Facebook and, and, and Apple and Google and Amazon and all these companies are building even more offices um, in the Bay Area. So um, it's pretty clear to me that, that these companies see, you know, th- that the marginal value is still very, very, very high for having your employees local. 
Um, and, and I agree with you, like no leader has really, you know, given like a good reason. Uh, you know, I have heard things like um, they say that if you're, um, uh, what was this? Oh, well, I don't know if this is that relevant, but they said that basically if you're in a different, uh, if you're more than I think a hundred yards away, or if you're in another city, it's basically the same. Like in terms of, you know, you don't walk over and talk to someone if they're in a building that's 100 yards away. Um, there is a time zone issue. That is very real. Um, so so it may be the only way to expand is is vertically, um, like, like Portland, Seattle, Redding, LA, San Diego, like um, to, to eliminate the time zone. But yeah, I just, I, I can't imagine that the, Personally, I can't imagine that the the value of having your employees here is really is really as high as as, as people are saying. But I'm also not leading thousand person organizations. So <laughs> Neither they, am they, I. They clearly know something that that we don't. I mean, I would love uh, for I, but, some dispersing to happen. It would be great. Um, but yeah, same li- here. Living here, being around all these people is a certain kind of interesting. Um, yep. And such a dense amount of tech people. Because you have a lot of concentration of people who like similar things to you. Uh, yep. So so there's a lot of catering to that, which is nice. Um, yeah, I mean, just to give it, put it in perspective, and I don't know if this story is really going to do that, but I'll tell, I'll tell it anyways. Uh, I was with my son, and uh, he was sick. So uh, I took him to, my wife was also sick. So I, I took him to Safeway, which is uh, the, the grocery store that's open 24 hours. Um, and as we were leaving Safeway, there was, um, I think it was, it wasn't necessarily like a bar but it was like a restaurant that had a bar basically if that makes sense. it was a bar and so the, these gentlemen are walking out of the bar and i got a little bit nervous because it was really late at night um, these people were definitely like very intoxicated and um we had to walk right by them and as i walk right by them one of them basically tells like and i'm not gonna say it's a little bit rude so i won't bother saying it but but basically told like a chess joke it was like some like lewd chess joke <laughs> And I was like, like, this is like the dregs of society. <laughs> it's like, it's like two drug, drug people telling like jokes about chess, like at two in the morning. <laughs> but that's basically what it's like here. It's just, there's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy too. When you talk to the other people on your team or, or at your company, and it's like, everyone was like solidatorian of their high school at some part of the world or something. It's just like mind boggling. Yeah, and I mean, I think for some, it, it, what do you call it, like table stakes? Like for some companies, startups of certain nature and need certain kinds of people, uh, you can only have it in that this area or it makes the most sense to have it in this area. And a lot of that's, people argue about that. I feel that, like that's an unknown. Yeah, so I mean, there's this, there's this unknown and no one wants to take the risk because it's so expensive. What is it? It's like but, no one got fired for choosing IBM. Is that was like yeah, IBM? Exactly. It's the same thing. It's like you're not going to get faulted. I mean, you might be, it might be wrong. You might fail, but nobody's really going to like look at you twice if you say you're making a startup in the Bay Area. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, there's this question. You know, I, I have this sort of hypothetical like thought. Uh, what is it called? A thought experiment. You know, if you opened a tech company in like pick the place in America that's and I'm yeah, I'm not going to hypothesize, but but imagine the close your eyes. Imagine the place in America that would be the worst for a tech company. Fargo. No, I don't know. I, I don't Sorry if know anyone's from is. Fargo. <laughs> Where's what's far? Anyway, um, and, and let's assume Google opened a branch there. Well, like, uh, you know, some engineers are going to move from Mountain View to to wherever that is. And, and that, I think, is an unknown quantity. 
and and we're, maybe when Amazon finally builds this HQ two, we'll be able to like at least get a measurement of that of that number, right? But that's a different number than if you have a a startup and you're trying to build one in Fargo. Yeah, I feel like that's that's very different. I mean, because there are some engineers yeah. there, but you're. No, most of what I've seen has either been somewhere with a reasonable size tech scene and saying that's enough, or we don't need the you know top 0.01% of the talent that exists in the Bay Area or um, some, something like that, or they're just committing to being remote team. So there exist people spread everywhere. And if you're not committed to this thing, Jason said, of having everybody within 100 yards of each other, um, and you're already saying we're going to build a remote company, a remote team, your options open up dramatically. But if you say, yep. hey, I need 30 really, really qualified people uh, and I want them to all sit within 100 yards and I don't have to convince people to move, where am I going to go, you know, make my startup? Then your choices are much more limited. Yeah, I mean, I think with startups, there's a there's another challenge, which is most of the VCs are here and things like that. So for people to know, VCs venture capitalists. So those are the people who are going to take the risk, uh, you know, and give your startup money. Uh, before you've really built anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason why. Uh, oh, well, well, there are reasons, but like, you know, Google could easily build a, you know, Google engineering office in Fargo. <laughs> but then there's this question of like, what would happen if they did that? And I, that's the big unknown. But yeah, the that being low income is interesting because of what it really means, but also why. And your question of is it sustainable is is unknown, right? Everybody tends to say this time is different. And the fact that this isn't the first this time leads me to sort of bet against it being different this time. Yep. Just just as a general rule, it seems like there's no obvious reason why it won't continue to be slightly worse and slightly worse. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I do think it will sort of plateau. Like there's been crazy growth recently. Um, I think, you know, at some point it will plateau, but... I mean, I don't really see like a big crash. I mean, in general, I mean, I don't know if this, maybe this is just crazy talk, but but I don't really think there's going to be these big crashes anymore. I mean, like in, in the, the market sense, in like, general, in tech and real yeah, estate like, and just period. Well, like, just, you know, like like the, the, the futures market is just so algorithmically dominated. Um, and I feel like that gives it just a level of resilience that, that it just never really had before. And so even like if you look at the 2008 crash, it still took, you know, years or maybe at least 18 months for the crash. to. It wasn't like uh, the 1930s or even 1998 where companies lost, you know, 70% of their value in, in two weeks, you know. So, yeah. So you're claiming is this time is different. I, I just think that there will be, if there is going to be a decline, it will be a slow decline. I don't think that we will yeah. wake up. There's people who say and, that, yeah, that, that we're less prone to bubbles than we used to be. We're getting better at managing our bubbles. Exactly. Like, it'll just I, be like... It is a hypothesis. The median house price will go from 900K to 800K over the next 30 years or something. Sure. Anyways, that's my two cents. Uh, don't, don't, don't buy, uh, don't bet on that. Yeah, this that's is not, not financial <laughs> advice. <laughs> Don't worry, it didn't sound very good advice anyways. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just teasing. Hey, God, I have to pull this dagger out of my heart. <laughs> well, on in something completely different. It's not like uh, it's not like I'm not reading economist books all the time or anything. I mean, you do, so, yeah, I mean. Oh, man. But that's your opinion, man. Um, that's true. Five React practice projects. Uh, you can search that. It'll be in the show notes. 
Um, this was a page I found. And in fact, it's actually kind of bad. I feel sad for recommending this because some of the links in here don't work anymore. I guess they oh, were referred to like a uh, service that had some like kind of useful APIs that is now down. But this is a really good collection. I struggle with this a lot. And, you know, a lot of people who are learning programming struggle with this, which is, okay, I learned like how to write a for loop. I learned how to make a web form. What next? Um, and actually coming up with well-defined beginner projects is really hard. Um, yep. And so for me, this has always been the case. Like I've always wanted to get into web development, get into, I, I mean, learn more about it. And one of the things I've struggled sure. with is, oh, I know how to make a web page, like put HTML on a page. That's cool. Um, I can, from JavaScript, from like a coding standpoint, I get, but there's a big gap in between that and making, you know, a full email client as a single page app that runs on multiple devices or whatever, right? You know, like going from A to B, it's that how do you draw an owl meme that's on Reddit? Like first <laughs> yeah. you draw like a circle and then you finish it. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly. Anyways, uh, so this site I thought had some really reasonable or at least, you know, I'm not done web development, but they seem reasonable to me like a step of, you know, first try doing this then you can use it in the same way to do this other thing. So the first one is like build, a, what is it called? Like a card, like a social card. Like you would see someone who embedded a Twitter message on their yep, website yep. and then build a weather app and how if you build a weather widget app that you have like days of the week with some icons and you can just sort of like fake the data or, or you know, they recommend like, oh, maybe you could get this API. Um, but those are like a series of those cards. So it's sort of like building upon itself. And I mean, I don't know that these particular ones are the most amazing examples, but I thought this is a good resource because I know for me, it's really useful to have someone else who's already been down the path, give a judgment on whether something contains an unforeseen difficulty that you won't be able to surmount. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I've done some, is this React Native or React Web? I mean, so I don't think, I I guess it kind of doesn't matter. I guess it would be React Web because most of this is talking about like a card you would embed in a website. But it okay, might be applicable with both. It's not a, here's a bunch of code on exactly how to do it. It's more like, here's something you could go off and try to do. Okay. Like go off and have this. So the classic one for me is always, oh, I learned C, like I want to write a video game. How do I write a, how do I draw a pixel on the screen? And it's like, oh, well, you could learn that. It's not going to be easy or hard. But at the same time, recommending you to go work with a, you know, C++ game engine isn't also a great first step either. Like it's a, it's an awkward thing, you know, which we've talked about before, like making a text-based game is much more approachable than making a full-blown graphics game. Yep, yeah, um, exactly. So something similar for the web. Anyways, if, it's use- if it sounds useful, check out the show notes or just search five React practice projects. Cool, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I think React Native and React JS, they're both great. I use them both uh, in some, some side projects and they worked out really well. It's on my perpetual list um, of things to do one day. Nice, nice. Um, Book of the show. show. My book of the show, really quick, is uh, Critical Play, Radical Game Design. Um, yeah, so I read this book. Uh, <laughs> I read this book last month, and uh, it was the only book I read last month. Last month was an extremely busy month for me. And so I'll admit, it wasn't that great. I probably wouldn't buy it. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we read books that, that, uh, that aren't, you know, the best. And, you know, we're totally honest. I'll put the link up. If you buy it, we'll get some Amazon money. Um, but I, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I guess wow. part of it was I was five I was stars. Expect- Would read yeah, again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, this proves we're not shills, right? I was, I was expecting. Um, I guess I was expecting radical game design to mean 
um, uh, like really um, like a chronology of really innovative things. Like, for example, uh, so one thing that comes to my mind is is tower defense. So uh, have you played these tower defense games? Yeah, I think I've played a few. Okay, like defense grid, kingdom rush. There's like a zillion of them now. But the idea with tower defense games is um, there's there's some enemies and they're just walking across the screen. They they have nothing to do with you. They just want to get from left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. And what you could do is build these little towers. The towers don't move, uh, but they have a little circular radius. And anything in that radius is going to take some damage over time. Um, and the name of the game is you have to strategize and build and upgrade the towers so that the people can't get from the left to the right side of the screen. Um, so if you build, you know, and, and you have to trade off, like I could build three towers or I could build one tower and upgrade it a bunch. And, and you, so you have to like really look at the, the, you know, the spec sheet to figure out like what is optimal and all of that. Um, and space is a constraint anyways. So, so that to me was like a radical game design. And someone actually made that as a mod to StarCraft one. At least that's the first time I saw it. Um, and, and the reason is, is StarCraft, the, the editor, you know, it was pretty limited, but this was one of the games that you could build in it. And so it was sort of just emergent based on, you know, the, the limitations of that, of that editor. And the fact that it was so easy to make a game inside of StarCraft and deploy it to millions of people. Um, so that, that, in my opinion, like that was something I would wanted to see. But instead, the whole book was all about basically games as art. And so it talked about like really things that were kind of out there. Like uh, there was a museum that had a game where, you know, you like walked through the museum as part of the game. I guess it was just more about, it was just much more connected to art. Um, it talked a lot about museums, talked a lot about different art styles. Um, there were, it was a lot of talking about like games that there's this game, I guess, that talked about kind of getting cancer and they, they spent a lot of time talking about that. And so, you know, I think, I guess what, when they thought of game design, they were really thinking about, you know, designing games to like affect a certain emotion. And they're really taking sort of that approach. And so in that sense, the book is pretty myopic. Um, you know, if you go on, on uh, let's say Wikipedia and you look at, you know, different game genres and you take that approach to game design, this book's going to kind of let you down, which is what it did to me. <laughs> so if you're interested in seeing like really crazy games uh, like there's one game you might have heard this, this game, Patrick. America's Army. Have you heard of this? The one that was paid for by the actual U.S. Army. Yeah. Yes. So so yeah, there was a game that was literally made by the army, and uh, it was it was it was basically meant to to uh, get people excited about the army, or at least that was like you know I guess one of the goals. And so this book talks a lot about that and social implications of that and things like that. And so I I, I have to admit like I found the book interesting. But it just, I felt like the title is misleading. And so it's kind of like, uh, um, you know, if someone hands you like a grapefruit and you bite it and it's actually like an orange, like a blood orange or something, you know, that's not going to taste good because you're expecting one thing and you got something else. And that's kind of kind of how I felt with this book. Like, you know, it looked like, looked like one thing, but then when I read it, it was something totally different. It kind of let me down. My book of the show gets five stars. Oh, wow. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Unless you read the bad book first. After, you, after someone emails us a receipt of having read Jason's book. Um, 
<laughs> so I actually had a different book, which I also would have probably given five stars. But I had a different book. And then uh, somebody had contacted Jason because I'm a social media hermit. Um, and This is true. I have to relay everything. Yeah, he sends me it. screenshots of people who, uh, who message him. So thank you all. Jason will continue to serve as my secretary. So if you have anything you would like to tell me, just let him know. Hey, carrier pigeon. Carrier oh, okay. Pigeon. Give credit words. Okay. Uh, and he, this was Christian. Uh, and he messaged Jason. and was like, oh, hey, Patrick and I have a lot of the same taste. You should recommend this book to him. And it turned out, I was like, uh, of course, I've already had that as my book of the show. Like, what, why did this guy, like, you know, message Jason about this? This is weird. Uh, and then I start, wait, I've never had this as book of the show. And then I was, when we were getting the show notes together, I was, you know, looking through and it's, oh, the reason why is that there's two books in this series so far. And the first book came out before we started recording Programming Throwdown. And the second book came out before we started book of the show on Programming Throwdown. Uh, and so I've never featured either the first or second book from the series. And so I'll start off wow. by recommending the first book. But I have actually read them, read them uh, many moons ago. And uh, they are really good books. But I will warn you, the series is not complete. Uh, and as you have I've already spoiled that only two of the three books are out. And the second book came out before we started having Book of the Show. And this podcast is going on many number of years now. Um, the author is unknown as to when the third book will be releasing. So if you don't like finishing un reading unfinished series, which is now a thing, you have to be careful, um, then I would, I, would, no, I would recommend waiting until the third book comes out. Uh, and that is The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. So very, 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 very good book. Highly recommend it. But also very frustrating that the first two books and we're still waiting on a third book for going on 10 years now. No, is that? No, oh, the wow. first book came out ten more than 10 years ago. The second book came out and it is not quite been that long, but it's been a long time. Uh, I'll have to look it up here. Uh, and uh, anyway, so it's a book about... Uh, a fantasy book, and uh, it was March 1st, 2011. So we're at uh, seven years since the last book came. Um, and oh. so Name of the Wind is a book, a fantasy book about uh, a man named Kvoth and his uh, experiences that I can't, I never know what to say, I don't want to spoil things, uh, but there's some magic in the book. The way the magic works is, is really good and interesting, and I like it. Uh, I thought it's a very sort of, um, this sounds bad to like a realistic approach to magic. Like, is that, I think I've said that about other books Surely before. It's kind of based in some kind of alchemy or something. Yeah. Like they try to come up with some consistent rules and how it would work and like trying to abide by those rules. Um, which I guess is an art. It's a game we all agree to play in our heads. Let's say that way. But yeah, this sense. game has interesting rules. Um, and they're well thought through and, and the world building is good. Um, and I, I definitely really, really, really enjoyed this book. I, I think I picked it up a couple times and didn't really, and then, you know, sort of had a little bit of a rough start, was busy. And then, but when I, once I finally got in, like, I'm going to read this, uh, it was really good. Uh, and then the second book, um, not quite as good as the first book, but second books are always kind of hard to write, I guess. Um, and I'm not an author, but authors say that, that second books are harder to write. It makes sense. I mean, you're, 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 uh, you're really like uh, calcified by the first book. Like you can't go back and change history. Or right. And then, and then the third, yeah. and you're trying to set up, like you're trying to wrap up some stuff, have your own story arc, but set up some stuff for the next book. 
Um, unless you're just having a two book series, in which case I don't know. But if you're having a three or four or five book series, um, yeah, that second one I think is a little tough sometimes. Um, but I still enjoyed the second book. So the one thing I will say that is sort of a funny uh, instance, if you do read this book uh, in the second book, um, so it's a book and in the book, someone's telling a story and in the story they're telling, there's people like writing books and telling stories. And at some point you realize you're like, four or five stories deep in this book. Nice. And so uh, it's like one of the, I don't know. I almost feel like I, when I realized this, I sort of chuckled and felt like somebody was like challenging themselves. Like how it's the inception thing. Like how many recursive stories can I have going on at one time? So like I'm telling a story to Jason about a dream I had. And in that dream, I was reading a book. And in that book, there was a storyteller. And the storyteller was telling a story about a man who wrote a book. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, what? Okay. Anyways. That's got to be really hard if you put that book down. You'll which one? You'll be able to put it back Wh- up. Which book? <laughs> <laughs> Where along the stack? <laughs> yeah, you definitely will have a stack fault if you have to go back six months later and try to remember what happened. So... And it's but uh, yeah, definitely. I, so I'm not saying very much because I never do. But name of the wind, fantasy, magic, uh, world building. Uh, definitely not short book. Uh, so if, if that if that seems to strike your fancy, then you've probably already heard about it and you've probably already read it. But if you haven't, then do five cool. stars. Don't read Jason's book. My book's better. <laughs> All right, sounds good. You can also get Patrick's book on Amazon using our link, and uh, that helps us helps out the show. Cool. Um, we also, if you don't want to buy his book uh, on Amazon, the 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 uh, I guess the the written version, the scripted version. I don't know what the word is. You can buy the audio version from Audible, and uh, you can go to audibletrial.com/slash/programmingthrowdown. Uh, we have a link in the show notes, and uh, you get a free book. And you start your trial, and uh, that also helps us out. Um, you can also donate to our Patreon, um, patreon.com/slash/programmingthrowdown. And um, I actually got all the thank you letters printed out and uh, I'm waiting. Patrick and I have to meet up so that he can sign them. Oh, uh, I know this is this is the longest Christmas present. Wait, what? Sure. I didn't really. Oh, no. Well, yeah, we, we you have some signing to do, buddy. Oh, oh boy. So we'll meet up. We'll uh, we'll sign them all um, and then we will send them off to you folks. And uh, we have everyone's address. A couple of people emailed me, by the way, saying, hey, this is my address. You know, last minute. It's totally fine. Um, not a problem. We should probably recheck if anyone's moved. Yeah. If you've moved, tell us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, if, if you, uh, I'll send them out ASAP. And if you moved, we'll send another one. Uh, tool of the show. show. Wow. That was awesome. My tool of the show is Visual Studio Code. <laughs> um, I actually made this tool before, uh, we decided to talk about GitHub, but it's amazing. I actually, um, this is going to surprise people. I stopped using Emacs. I just switched to this. Um, I, I take it back. I still use Emacs. So, so this is like most of the graphical IDs. It's project-based. So um, you know, if you're editing like a random file in your home directory, um, it doesn't make sense to like, start up Visual Studio Code. Um, but uh, for, for all of my like projects, I'm, I'm using Visual Studio Code. And I love it. Um, it's really, really nice. Um, it, uh, it's extremely fast which is really surprising because it's it's much faster actually than Atom. And Atom itself is is, is so fast it almost doesn't matter. Um, but this thing like doesn't you know burn up your battery. Um, 
It's extremely slick. Now, people might say, oh, Visual Studio, that's been around since the 90s. Visual Studio Code is totally different. So so Visual Studio Code is, is, a, is an IDE written, it's a fork of Atom, and it has no relation to Visual Studio, uh, I guess, proper or what, ha- what have you. Um, it has an amazing sort of plugin ecosystem. So I was immediately able to get like a CMake plugin, a C++ plugin, um, a Python plugin, um, I installed, uh, um, there's, a. actually it was a tool of the show a while back, uh, editor config, which is a style guide, you know, plugin. Uh, it has support for almost anything, even like thrift and protocol buffer syntax highlighting. It has all that stuff. Um, the plugin system is great. Editor is great. Um, I actually know a buddy who switched to it too, and he loves it. Um, and yeah, check it out. I mean, I am really, really surprised if you use like sublime or atom, or uh, you know, one of these editors that's kind of in the ballpark of Visual Studio Code, definitely check out Visual Studio Code. It might be worth the switch. Um, I used to do a lot of stuff in just Emacs, and uh, you know, like I said, I, I pretty much switched. I spend ninety percent of time in this now, um, so check it out. So one caveat is it's not a fork of Atom. They use oh. the same uh, framework, Electron, that a GitHub built for Atom. Oh, I see. But it's not actually a fork, or at least it's so the internets tell me. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I don't know how I knew that. I feel like somebody at work, I think, told me that, but I never really thought You probably read it on the internet, just like I read my thing on the internet. I don't know who we can trust. (laughs) Either way, it's it's really, really well done. Um, Definitely recommend using it. So the people who, who built that again, Jason, the Atom engine electron. Oh yeah. GitHub. My tool of the show is GitHub. (laughs) Your tool of the show is worth $7.5 billion. Boom. (laughs) Fortunately, it doesn't cost that much to use. Yep. Uh, Totally free. No. So uh, Jason and I were talking about this before, but I mean, GitHub, if you, you know, want to, and maybe there's even been a tool of the show before we try to check and, and we, we don't think it was. But if you're, you know, trying to share your code with people um, rather than emailing around in a file like we used to, I mean, you should be posting it on GitHub. You should be if you're not currently working and you're in school um, and you want to get used to sort of how teams do stuff, you know, and how source control works, which we've talked about before, um, you know, you can get on GitHub, make a public repository and then you can put it on your resume uh, you know, fork people on GitHub, I mean, all that good stuff. Uh, we really take GitHub for granted, but I want to talk about it as a tool to show for sort of one specific use, which is going in and trying to find for, uh, you know, projects that you know are in the language you're using or big and looking as uh, examples on how to do stuff. Um, so I found a lot of use of going in on big projects and searching for functions or things and just getting a feel for how they've, I've decided to use something. So uh, I'll try to find out if a project, like, you know, an example, I don't, this isn't true, but like, oh, I'm using some boost library and I'm really struggling with like, hey, how do I, how should I really use this? Or what's the, what's a good invocation pattern for doing this? And uh, I'll go on to GitHub and try to find a project that uses that boost library and look at how they're doing it. So this sort of code searching ability. The one thing is that I, I wish they would do, which they don't, you have to already be in a repository in order to be able to search. Um, and I wish they would let you sort of search across. Oh, I can, all, I can give you a, a, a power tip. Oh, is it? Basically, wait, uh, I, I have a shortcut which does 
uh, a Google search, but it forces the site to be github.com. Oh, yeah, okay. The there we go. All right. So there you go. GitHub's my tool of the show. Very nice. Yeah, GitHub's amazing. You can actually see I'm in the mad- middle of a technical argument on Git, actually, with the, the owners of Hyper.js. Oh. And, uh, you, can, you, can, you can see you know, I'm trying to use all of these skills that we're going to talk about on the technical arguments show. <laughs> and so we're going to talk all about, uh, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, and uh, we've seen a whole bunch of different arguments. Um, obviously, any job has arguments. We're going to try to... We're not going to talk about like, I don't know, political arguments or argument over who has the best sports team or something like that. I mean, we're going to try, we're going to keep it very specific. Um, but, you know, some of the things I'm sure will translate um, or will generalize. Um, but, you know, we've seen a lot of, a, there, there's there's a lot of different arguments, a lot of contention, right? And as you can imagine, a lot of it centers around different sort of design decisions and things like that. But it can get all the way down to, uh, you know, where you put the semicolons and all of that. So, so we're going to talk about all of that. So we try to break it down into a couple of sections uh, and and just sort of some themes. So we'll see how this goes. But the first one I have is this debate about trying to get things done versus doing the right thing. Uh, this one's really tough. I mean, I don't know that yep. there's, there isn't, in fact, almost all of these, there isn't a right answer, which is why they're hot topics to debate. That's right. This one, I would say even more so than maybe almost i'm trying to read this list really quick while i don't lose my talking pace this one might be the hardest one this no, one this comes is up the hardest all one. the time just like on and, and at every scale so yep. you could imagine like an entire company having yep. the debate about and that is like when to do the right thing versus when to just get it done and this comes up at like you know should we ship this product should we you know ditch it and try another prototype um you know all the way down to just things in your code like you know, oh, I could just, you know, declare a global variable here and be done with this. Um, or I could sit here and try to think about what the right, right way to refactor it would be. And, you know, it, it's from the start of your project when you're saying, like, let me just get something banged out and iterate it to, like, let me sit down and come up with, you know, a full-on UML diagram and architecture of everything I want to build. I'll write my tests first and do test-driven development, like, you're, you might be doing it right, but your first bit of code, you know, might not come out for a long time. This is this is really tough. And a lot of this, there's lots and lots of factors that come into here. But part of it is if you ever have a deadline uh, and whether you were asked for input on when, what was a reasonable deadline or not. I mean, deadlines exist. They come up and you always end up against the wall. And missing a deadline often has sort of bad consequences. And sometimes you need to sort of not do the right thing in order to hit the deadline. The problem is if you don't strike the balance, then you build up what we call sort of technical debt. And technical debt just means exactly that. Like you were trying to get something done quick or you didn't know the right answer. And so you just did whatever came to mind. And now you have some bit of code, which later will come to need to be refactored or will slow down programmer efficiency or increase I always use this term a lot, the increase the cognitive burden of your code, which is like how many things you need to hold in your head to yep. to do this, or is it completely obvious on reading it? Um, and, and these things is a really difficult balance to strike. But I think this one is probably the one that comes up almost continually while you're working. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, one thing I would add to that is, is uh, you know, 
sometimes you have these external deadlines, right? Like let's say you have a product manager and, and or some program manager and they're setting the deadlines or something like that. Um, but then, you know, there's many times where you are sort of in charge of, of that. And, um, and even then it's not trivial. Um, basically, you um, like, you know, the, the product itself is sort of an unknown, right? Like you don't know exactly what, you know, you're building and what it's going to look like and how people are going to react to it and all of that. I mean, if you are like, for example, if you are um, building uh, like a chip and you're implementing the floating point operator or something like that, that's a very different environment. Those environments are usually just extremely controlled and regimented and they can be right. But if you're building, let's say an app, um, the first you know few months of the app, you might just be trying to find out what people want and how to sort of reconcile the things that you want to offer with the market and what they want to consume. And so your app, like on the surface, it might be changing massively from one day to the next and you're incurring a lot of technical debt and the code is super ugly and that is good, right? You don't want to take the approach of someone who's designing like, you know, uh, uh, the next Intel chip when you're making this app because because then you can't you can't really navigate that space quickly, right? Um, and so that's that's why it's difficult is um, you're sort of trading off, uh, let's say, learning and exploring with, uh, as Patrick said, like building something that, um, you know, can allow you to scale to the next level. So if, if you just focus on exploring, you end up with something that's too fragile for you to, you know, uh, use it as a platform for the next thing. And so, yeah, trading that off is extremely difficult. And I think here, the way to sort of resolve arguments like this is to just understand that dynamic, right? And so, um, um, so, so what that means is, you know, if the app, if you're still trying to figure out what you're doing, then uh, you need, then you sort of relax, right? Uh, on a lot of these, like, just, you know, like over-engineering, like you don't over-design things. But then on the flip side, you, you know that you're going to have to pay that price later. So, you know, when the app is done and they say, okay, you know, the app does music, now let's make it, you know, play videos too. And let's do the next version of it. That's when you need to say, whoa, whoa wait a minute. You know, we need to, to sort of redo this because we didn't even know, we thought that this was a dating app and now we're a music player. <laughs> and so, so along the way, we've made a lot of bad decisions we need to now go through and like redo everything. So I feel like if you can kind of gauge that ebb and flow of, of your project, that will sort of give you the the um, insight that you need to like win that that argument or make the most compelling argument, you know, when it comes to that. Yeah, I guess this one also is, is difficult because it comes down to the like true cost of things, which is if you take a long time to build the most amazing platform ever, and you never ship your product, you're going to go bankrupt. Um, you, right, right. Yeah. So like, what is the first, like in different industries and in different applications, like first mover advantage is different. So if you're building a, you know, airplane, you, it needs to be safe. It needs to be a lot of things. Um, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily right. always have to be first. Um, although I, I mean, maybe there's exceptions to that, I guess, but yes. uh, yeah, yeah if you're sense. making a dating app, yeah, whether or not 
your reliability is a hundred or is, you know seven nines of uptime and you use the most advanced algorithms for distributed consensus of consistent database updates yeah i don't know that anyone cares. yep yeah exactly and so you know typically here like the, the the worst case scenario here is where you have someone who just doesn't get that and they want to write just extremely regimented code when you don't have a product or on the flip side um you know, that you have a really hacky system, it's constantly breaking and you can't really use it as a platform for anything and people just want to keep hacking on it, right? Um, so those those are the two extremes. And that's, that's uh, um, and so I think, you know, getting everyone on board with, with why those are extremes and why there is a better middle ground is, is the first step. So uh, yeah, the, another one uh, that you mentioned here is, is uh, you know, when and how so, to optimize. I mean, what, the, what's your when and how to, so people love to quote, I, I think it's a Donald Knuth quote, is uh, early optimization is the root of oh, all yeah, evil. The, yeah, is go that, for it. Yeah, okay. Which like, it's kind of a frustrating yeah, quote because I know what right. he's saying and it's true, but it's, it gets to the heart of this idea of, you know, if you optimize some bit of your code that doesn't end up getting called very often, um, you know, that's not the right place to spend tons of time trying to make the most efficient, you know, selection for how to do your hash mapping hash function um, because you only ever end up using it five times the whole time your program runs. Um, And so early optimization really can cause a lot of problems. It's true. But deciding when to scale or not is, and we've talked about this a number of times on the show before, but like if you sort of say, I'm going to go build a web app that scales to 100 people, um, that's not necessarily a horrible thing or, or don't even worry about scale because you don't know if it'll be interesting or useful. You need to go out and try, which is what Jason was getting at. But at the same time, the first time you get featured yep. on a, you know on, on Reddit front page or you know, on Hacker News or whatever, and your website goes down because you only anticipated getting one user per day and you have it running on, you know, the computer under your desk, um, you know, that's not ideal either. But building for something that's Facebook scale when you don't even know if anyone cares about your product. Yeah, this is really tough. I guess it's a little similar to the doing it right before. But optimizing means figuring out what parts of the system you're going to choose to design in a way that they you know sort of can scale as well as making sure to try to build enough of a system so that you can start taking measurements about where your performance bottlenecks are but this is something that i find is often comes into a hot debate because the more optimized you make something you normally don't increase flexibility you normally make the code harder to read uh, and the systems more tightly coupled um, as a general rule uh, and so you introduce a lot of, you introduce mm-hmm. a lot of That's other right. issues. The f- the faster you try to get your processes to go, the more scalable you try to make them. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think um, you know if you have this type of argument, so I guess the the two positions here that that you could be arguing is one is is someone wants to optimize something, and you don't want them to optimize that. That's probably pretty rare i mean unless you're the eng manager and and you don't want them to optimize well i mean i think the issue that comes up here is someone saying Um, oh your design like you should use a different algorithm here like you know you're 
you're doing something naive like oh you're doing a bubble sort here like why are you doing okay that's a bad example but like why are you doing why are you doing merge sort here instead of using sure, you know sure. this new research algorithm that says it could potentially go faster um, when no one really knows the data and you get these you know sort of drive-by requests often as in regards to optimization um, you know like well, what's going to happen when we have you know four orders of magnitude more data than we have today uh, and it's you know, I guess you're right. Maybe it's a manager to manage employee question that comes up a lot, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, for, for it to come from another team, that other team probably has, cause most teams don't necessarily care how optimized other teams codes are. Unless, yeah, that's fair. It's not an inter team. This is, yeah, I think this would be within your team or a debate between you and your manager. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, if someone comes to you and says, I want to optimize code X, then of course, you just let them do it unless you're the manager. And, you're, and, and the issue there is, I mean, there's there's a bigger issue here, which is, I guess this ties into the first two questions is, um, how do you really reward um, that kind of work? And I feel like unless it's unless it's it's releasing a safety valve, you know, so, so in other words, like you have some critical performance problem and this fixes it. You know, but in all other cases, like if it's, if it's even remotely preventative, it's very hard to justify that. And that's one of the reasons why I think the engineering leadership needs to be technical is uh, is so that you know, those types of work, uh, that type of work could be justified, you know. Yeah, but engineers love tinkering. So like, I, I don't know, I like tinkering. So and it's more comfortable to stay in the same code and just keep like making it better. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah. And then there's there's. I won't spend too much time on this, but there's, you know, a whole bunch of arguments around languages, you know, which language to use. Um, that's that's obviously a really big one. Um, one thing to mention there is uh, um, a lot of people don't know this, but, but you know, most big companies use a ton of languages and they communicate. They use inter-process communication. They use TCP. Um, and, and so you have like a Java program talking to a C++ program and things like that. Or if you're getting really sophisticated, you can use Swig or one of these things. Um, but yeah, you know, you don't have to get like your entire company, you know, uh, revolving around one language by any means. Um, but, you know, still, I mean, that's that's going to be a hot debate, right? There's going to be people who like different languages. And uh, I think that's a very difficult, you know, situation. Um, you know, I think uh, there's obviously a ton of research on whether you should use language X or language Y, and people will will, will refer to all of that research. Um, I mean, one of the things to keep in mind here is that it doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Um, I mean, I've written PHP, I've written all sorts of languages that, and hopefully this show kind of really conveys that message to people. If you've been following our show, then you already kind of know this. Um but, you know, if at the end of the day, someone, you know, really wants to use language X and for whatever reason, you know, or let's just make it more obvious, the whole company except you wants to use language X, then uh, it's, it's actually not the end of the world. It's not too bad. Um, it always seems worse than it is, um, you know, using a language that, that you that is not preferred. Um, but I mean, it's a real issue. It's very difficult. I mean, we actually had this today. We, we uh, at work, um, we are decided to rewrite something. Uh, in another language and so you know, we built a prototype and it had a lot of the nice features that we liked specifically so, so we're porting stuff that was written in sql to a real programming language that has unit tests and things like that um and so you know we kind of agreed we had a round table we agreed that is a way to go 
Um, but I think part of the reason why we agreed is that we had been through so much pain, uh, you know, with the, with the original approach. Um, so, you know, if someone was brand new on the team, they might not see the reason for, for doing that. Um, but yeah, in general, this, I would say this is also in the camp of really, really difficult arguments. Um, like what would you do, Patrick, if someone said we need to rewrite our whole thing in I don't know, some other language. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of the right tool for the right job, but it, I guess it, your, your contention that it doesn't matter as much as you think depends a lot on the situation. So if you're writing, you know, code that's distributed via inner process communication and you want to write in a language that works fine via that mechanism, then yeah, probably not a big deal. If you're writing a library that needs to be performance oriented that other people are going to call, you probably want it or you're going to have to sign up to maintaining wrappers um, into into the language that everybody uses. So if you're working at a video game studio and someone needs a bullet physics library, you're not going to be writing that in Java. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So sometimes it matters. Uh, and if you're writing a script that's just a one-off, like I mostly care about the data product, again, probably doesn't matter. Um, and for me, though, for code that is going to be needing to be maintained and sort of stable and production and known and code reviewed, you need to have at least some body of knowledge, you know, on your team or a commitment from everybody that they are okay with that language choice. So if somebody decides, you know, I'm going to go write this widget in, you know, language foo and nobody else really is interested or wants to do it, you end up with this problem, which I see happen sometimes where that person goes and writes that tool and then later they leave the team and then you need to go use that tool and it's always everybody dreads it because it's like, oh, it's written in foo and nobody knows how to go in and fix it or and it breaks all the time. And you end up with this problem of like you've saddled that team with something they didn't really want. Yeah, that's is, a really good point. Actually, if you want to if you want to be passive aggressive at work as a software engineer, probably the most passive aggressive thing you can do, like that's the most destructive is to write something in a very obscure language. Um, we had someone write uh, our, we had this, this system and like Patrick says, is meant to hook into, uh, not necessarily hook in, but it was meant to, it was meant as a library where people would, would, uh, many people would add their own flavor to it. Right. So think of it as sort of an SDK, like OpenGL or something. And you would, the plan was to build something in OpenGL or in this case, in this library, in this SDK. And the person wrote it in, in Haskell. And uh, the issue there was, you know, now anyone who wanted to use our system had to learn this language. And so, you know, in the context of many alternatives, most people just said, well, I'm not going to learn a whole language when I could just use some alternate system that gets me, let's say, 90% of the way there. But, you know, I can write it in Python. And so that person, after spending like over a year um, writing the SDK, had to completely rewrite it in Python. And that was, that was extremely painful. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think it's a really good point is uh, you have to really look at your audience. And, uh, you know, if you're at a company where everyone's writing in, in Haskell, um, then, you know, you really need to think about that before you make an argument. Um, like, you, unless, I mean, like as Patrick said, like if you have to do a, a physics engine, you're not going to do that. Actually, I don't know how fast Haskell is. Let's, let's say, uh, I don't know, basic or something. I don't know, Python. You're not going to write like a physics engine in pure Python. Um, but you know, I mean, once you get rid of the kind of very obvious constraints, right. Uh, you should think really carefully before you do anything other than, 
the you know most common language that that your team or your organization is using right i mean that just don't underestimate uh, like try like try to really avoid having that argument you know and on the flip side if someone you know if 90 percent of your code base is python and someone wants to write something in erlang um you know i mean there there needs to be like a really solid reason for that and sometimes there um, are but then i think what jason describes the right way i think you build a little prototype you try to shop it around to the team and you know say like hey i went and did this thing like look at advantage x y and z you know that this is really going to be a, a game changer for us. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, like there has like, to be real yeah. tangible benefits. Yeah. Yeah. So tabs versus spaces, we brought this up and got emails about this from people. So <laughs> people are very passionate. Actually I mean, it's in the, in the Silicon Valley show. Tabs versus spaces. Yeah. Um, this is a debate. Just avoid it. Style. <laughs> you should have <laughs> style guidelines. Uh, and you know, you should, I, I'm a big fan of like, pick something and stick to it and new people come to the team they don't like them they don't want them it's it sucks it's a struggle but everyone needs to have you don't have to make them overly restrictive but you need some guidance on not writing bad code and if you don't have it written down everybody's going to argue about it every code review so it's better to write it down and like just hash it out and hopefully your manager is technical enough to just come in and make a consensus decree Um, yeah i mean I don't know if, if this is just a, a benefit of Python or if this is the way the team works, but the team I'm on now, this the, the um, they have a very complicated um, automatic style, like a uh, prettier. Um, and the cool thing is basically the, the team philosophy is if the automatic system, whatever it does is, is the truth. So in other words, like if you can write, now you can obviously like, you know, uh, you could write like really obscure, obfuscated code, and and you could trick the the prettier, right? But uh, you know, no one's really done that yet. It hasn't really come up even once. And then basically, yeah, the prettier is so sophisticated that people just they write code however they want, <clears throat> and then once they run this, it's just like an auto formatter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It just automatically, you know, adheres to a certain style. Yep. And um, yeah, I really like that. I mean. I, I honestly, I used to really hate getting style feedback on my changes. And uh, I think the reason why is I always felt like, you know, I, it made me feel like just like this cog in the machine. It's like, uh, oh, you know, this should be, you know, indented a little bit more or something. And and that kind of went away when I like Clang format or, uh, you know, the Pi Flake 8 or whatever. When these things came out that basically just did all of this for us. So like, I mean, in your case, do you, do you ever have to actually do the style manually? Like what kind of decisions? Do you no, have to but make I mean, that? somebody has to decide which of like, you know, I write a lot of C++ code. Like there are many different C++ style guidelines. Like should, oh, should you put a space before and after a plus operator? You know, the big one that always comes up is where should the pointer, the asterisk go? Should it go on the variable? Should it go on the type? Should it go with the space on both sides? It's got to go on the type, right? Uh, no, it definitely should go on the variable. We're not what? getting on this. Um, wait, and wait, it just, hang on, hang on. No, hang stop, on, stop, stop. We will completely derail. We'll <laughs> prove this point. Um, <laughs> you can create, there are legitimate arguments for both. So it ultimately just comes down to an opinion. There isn't a logical, obvious. Well, I always felt answer. like the pointer is what changes the type from a. I don't know, so, but you can put multiple on a single line. So if you do like int star a, comma b, B wouldn't be a pointer type. 
Oh, well, that's true. Yeah. So then not not modifying the type in that way. That makes sense. I never thought about that. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the usually... most succinct one I can give. There's other more nuanced variants. Okay. We're not going to get off on yeah, this. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, the, you know, lots of style guidelines. And I think this is an argument that gets had. And this is one of the things where when you join a new team and they either don't have a style or they have a style you disagree with, it's a really tough situation. You really got to weigh your options about what are you going to do. So if there's no style, I was in an instance where I joined a team, didn't really have a consistent style. They weren't really adhere to it. And I came in and you know sort of was the one who began enforcing the style and it took a lot of goodwill out of my sale from being the new person on the team to coming in and having my boss sort of tell me that yeah that's what i want you to do and you know have to go in and tell people yeah the way you've been writing code for the last two years is bad and it's confusing and doesn't look good um (laughs) and so if you go on a team and they have a style guideline I would say try to go with it for some period of time and try to, if there's really things you think don't make sense or are inconsistent or aren't great, like try to work on them like as small things um, as opposed to just coming in and like erupting with this sucks. This is completely wrong. You guys are horrible. Don't do that. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, you know, like any, you know, uh, I guess artist, right? I mean, you could think of it as an art. Uh, you know, there's a stereotypical like the artist is super self-critical and critical of the medium and things like that. And and it's easy for people to, to, to be that way. And so it's really important. I think the overarching lesson, if we could say one thing, is that it's really important to step back and, and say, OK, you know, let's take myself out of the equation. And, and it's really, you know, think about like, is this really that big a deal? Um, so, yeah, another thing is, you know, IDEs or text editors. This is less of an issue now. Um, that there is, you know, automatic styling. Because a lot of the, um, there might be some people who, who you know, where the, the IDE is actually carrying a lot of weight. Like you have the build system integrated with the IDE. Or, yeah, this or, depends a lot words. on the project, whether this is a personal choice or a team choice. Yeah, like if you're building an iOS app or something, yeah. for example, you might be handcuffed. Well, there you might not have a choice at all. So this is not really an argument. But in <laughs> yeah, some cases, true. like you said, if there's like a plugin that needs to be hooked into a custom build system or something... Um, and if your team is creating or maintaining that plugin and whether you maintain it for IDE, A or B, or sometimes like for people will be really into Emacs and have a complex set of Emacs plugins. So, uh, yeah, and, that's right. And, uh, you know, they share that around the team and everybody uses it. And if you're trying to use VI, yeah, that's uh, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, is more, I, I think this true. is mostly a personal opinion. Like, oh, sorry, over time. Oh, no, I was just going to say like. Yeah, I, this 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 argument is pretty rare, especially nowadays. That the ID, like before, you know, like Visual Studio would also be your build system. Um, now people don't really do that anymore, and and so you know, especially now, if you want to do continuous integration or something like that, you need to have a build system that's sort of orthogonal to your or or separate from your editor. And so yeah, I mean, at most jobs, you should be able to use whatever ID you want. Um, so I guess the only argument would be. Uh, you know, like how much work is it going to take and maintenance is it going to take to let you use the editor you want? And, um, you know, will everyone around you, so you might be in a position where you need everyone around you to make, let's say a small sacrifice, like for example, learning make, um, so that you don't have to be forced to use visual studio, for example. Um, and I think this, this actually, I would echo Patrick's advice from earlier that basically you don't come in on day one and say, everyone, we're going to switch to make. Um, so you're going to have to bite the bullet um, and, and do some Visual Studio, at least in the beginning. But but one thing that would be good is, is you know, take the initiative to 
you know, redo your entire build uh, system and make, um, present that to the team and say, look, we have something, you know, I can run it on in the cloud, has all these advantages. Um, you know, also I'll be able to use any editor I want. Um, but to kind of show up, show up with a solution, um, I think that makes a really big difference. Now, that's going to take a lot of energy and, and it might be wasted. But, I mean, if you're that passionate about, you know, using Emacs, for example, then that, that, that's, um, that's a risk you want to take, right? So, so showing up with a solution is always um, a way, way better, um, even if you have to sort of do it, you know, on your own time, um, you know, like, like, you know, on the, if you have to come into work on a weekend or something to do it, it might be worth it because, because it could, you know, kind of pivot the whole team then. So we're running uh, quite a bit long, but uh, let's talk a little bit about how, if you do get yourself into one of these arguments, some, uh, some good gu- guidelines to stand by. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think uh, we covered a lot of it, but just to summarize, um, you know, really, you know, and, and be honest with yourself and really reflect on why you want what you want. There are some people who um, you could see them like they show up on day one. They're like, oh, like everything has to be written in Scala or something like that. And, uh, um, you know, really think about like what do you and be honest. So like, for example, maybe you want to use Scala because you want to learn Scala. Maybe you want to learn Scala. It's a skill for you and you have a chance to learn it um, while you're working. So basically like learn it for free, like on someone else's dime. And, and now have to be more marketable, right? But I mean, that could, that's fine, you know, but, but, and you know, obviously you have to, you know, speak with some tact and you don't just go into the meeting saying, hey, I want to learn a new language on your dime, boss. Um, but, but beyond, but, you know, internally be honest with yourself, right? So, so know what your values are, why you want the things you do and have clarity there. Um, also, you know, think about um, the compromises or the alternatives, right? Like, what is alternative? What are you going to lose? Um, and that's going to really tell you how much energy you need to spend or, or risk, let's say, on, on getting the change you want, right? So this gets back to the whole building the, the prototype and make, right? Like, if, it's, if, if coding in Visual Studio is so frustrating to you that you're going to lose, uh, you know, a lot of productivity and it's going to frustrate you, it's going to make you not like this job, then it's worth, you know, spending an extra 40 hours off the clock, uh, porting the whole thing to make um, so, and trying to convince everyone to do that, right? Um, if you think about it, then you might think, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. Uh, I'll just bite the bullet and do Visual Studio, right? But but figure that out kind of beforehand. Um, and then the second part of that is, is, you know, when you have this argument, and the argument could be impromptu where you don't really have time to figure it out, right? But whether you've had time or not, um, don't necessarily like force a decision right away. Like this isn't, you know, like a criminal trial or something, right? So, you know, have a discussion about it. Try to keep things open-ended, at least initially. Um, you know, go home, think about what was said. Think about how that might change, you know, the, the state and, and the compromises you have to make. And then show up the next day sort of with the next sort of evolution of this argument, right? And, 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 you know, kind of slowly converge to a solution. Um, that's often way better than, than uh, and if you have that expectation that you're, this is a convergence process and not like a jury, um, that's really going to sort of change the attitude. And you can actually, you could lose the argument and have to use Visual Studio to extend the example, but, but actually gain a lot of respect. Um, 
based on sort of how you handle yourself in that situation. Yeah, I think that's one we don't have on here, but picking your battles, even though yeah. technically, right, you might be correct across all of these things. People are, you're not going to be a very popular person if you're fighting everybody on every front all the time. Yep. Yeah, there's this saying like, uh, you know, don't be dead wrong, but don't be dead right, <laughs> right? So so I think the, the metaphor that they use is, you know, you're driving on the highway, uh, you know, some like country highway, two lane highway, and a semi is coming the other way. They're driving on the wrong side of the road, right? You don't just like hit the semi head on just on principle, you know? And so it's the same thing here where, where uh, you know, at the end of the day, like, like part of this is just respecting other people's values. And so if, if the whole team has one set of values, that's the semi, right? And, and, and whether they're right or not, you're going to have to handle that situation sort of very delicately. And other thing I know I struggle with sometimes is be careful to pay attention to other people's demeanor, their feelings. Even if you're having a technical argument, some people become passionate and are okay having a heated debate and other people begin to have a very personal reaction uh, and are and don't don't necessarily take well to having their choices questioned or something even if you're well-intentioned even if you're you don't mean it that way but you know do it and also the venue for having these discussions you know if you have a weekly whole team meeting some people might be fine discussing stuff in that other people might rather you talk to them at their desk or schedule a special meeting, or have this discussion over email where they can think about their responses um, and be slight, you know, be sensitive as you can to how other people prefer to have these exchanges. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But definitely always do them loudly in the middle of your building. Like that, that's the, <laughs> that's the like definite goal. Yeah, that's right. Oh man. We uh, actually just to the side, we moved and, uh, um, the new desk area we got there we're like this is amazing we're all super excited and and is a, it's even a new building so we don't really have any bearings um we're so unbelievably excited and then we realized that we sit right over the the restaurant uh, our restaurant and uh around noon it's just like a total madhouse you can't hear oh, anything no. and I, I never realized it. it's the first time i've ever really been in this position but but uh yeah, noise pollution is like actually a huge problem. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so don't don't have your big arguments in the middle of the room. Also, like as I said before, like you know, converge slowly. You know, there's very few things you actually Rip need the to rush. Like, yeah, you you don't like need to decide whether you're going to rewrite the whole thing in in Java today. Like that 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 never almost never needs to happen. And so, as Patrick said, some people. I mean, it might be a combination of shyness, but it also might be some people just, they don't have, uh, they just need to think about things, right? And and everyone, you know, when they sleep on things, they come back with sort of a slightly different perspective, right? And so you want to take advantage of of, of that latent perspective. Or push for your victory. <laughs> yeah. 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 If, if you have the majority, then just try to close the deal right away. <laughs> I'm, d- I'm sorry. <laughs> It's like buying a used car or something. Um, cool. Well, yeah, let us know. I'm really curious to think uh, to, to hear what you think about this episode, um, you folks out there. Um, you know, we, this is, I would say this is like a completely different, uh, you know, style of, of, of episode for us because this is just very ad hoc. Um, we're really just kind of relaying uh, like life experiences. And uh, um, let us know what you think. Um, so, you know, we have the interview format. 
we have the something where it's like a very specific subject format, like machine learning or C++ or something like that. This is almost like a, I look at this as almost like a third format. And so I'm really curious, this is sort of us dipping our toe in this. Um, let us know what you think, if this was interesting to you. Uh, you're based on the time, we can clearly talk about this forever. So, so that part was good. <laughs> but uh, let us know if, if, if you found it entertaining. Till next time. See you later. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.